Welcome back to another episode of Like Dragon, Like Sun. My name is Jay Oatway. And my name is Jack Oatway. And this is a father-son podcast about the world's greatest role-playing game. Dungeons and Dragons. But it won't always be the world's greatest role-playing game, as old books fade into obscurity and new books come around. Well, perhaps that is what has made it the world's greatest role-playing game, is that it's got longevity. That, Mm. you know, this game's been around since 1974. And the rule books that we're using today are not the same rule books that were here, whatever that is, 48 years ago. Mm. And that has maybe started to happen again with the release of, at least time of recording, very new book, um, Mordenkainen's Monsters of the Multiverse. Which is more than just a book. It's a it's a series of three books, um, which includes a month. Really? Yeah, it's his three book sleeve thing, basically, is it? isn't it? Um. But it is, I think, the one, the main one book in it, though, is the, is going to consolidate. We'll tell you all a lot more about this next week when it all comes out. But um, my understanding of it at this point is there's a great consolidation happening of two of our favorite books from the past, Bolo's Guide to Monsters and Mordekainen's Tome of Foes. Um, those two books having a number of playable races in them that we... Um, didn't have before as well as a whole bunch of new monsters in them and uh, a lot of lore about those monsters and races mm. yes um, the thing is now they're being listed as legacy content which essentially means that unless you purchase them online or have the physical copies Get they're no now. longer considered um, you know canon if you will yeah and they are not going to be purchasable. Am nope. I correct in that? Yeah. On, so on if you D&D own Beyond them, if you website. own them now on D and D Beyond, uh, you'll forever own them. Sure. And you'll be able to see that content, and I think still share it if you have got like master tier and things with others. Um, but if you're a newbie, uh, or just somebody who hasn't purchased them yet, uh, after soon, uh, next week, tomorrow, whenever you're listening to this, last week, uh, <clears throat> around this time. They will become sort of mythical books, things of legend, mm. lost, you know, yeah, arcana. What are, what are we really losing here, you know? Well, I think I think typically we gain as we put, move forward with D&D, mm. right? <clears throat> the evolution of the rule set is, is a good thing. The it's, updating it's, of lore. It's always been a good thing. I, you know, followers of this podcast have heard me say it uh, before a million times. There's never been a better time to be playing Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. And that has largely to do with the, the continuing updating of the design of the game. Um, the mm. parts of the game that 5e's always been a little bit weak on uh, is the lore. We often on this podcast dig into past lore, past stories. Where did this come from? You know, who the heck was Tasha? Who's Mordecai? And where did these names come from? You know, the stories of, of Gygax and his friends playing these various characters and how they got their names and the worlds they inhabited. And 
and even then like the bigger multiverse beyond that we do talk about um we we've done a tour of the outer planes and that there's you know of the lower planes the between the abyss and the the hells that um you know there's a war between devils and demons it's 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 a big deal down there uh it's a big deal in the history of things and that story exists in these books i'm actually i was going to say it exists inside mordecanans but i'm not totally sure i've got that right mm. is it mordecanans that 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 stories are in i don't know i, I, I know so. there's a yes, lot it is. of war but um so yeah the the blood war stuff is definitely mm. covered in that and the volo's guide one does volo guide it's not to say that volo's guide's got mm. uh a lot of giants wars and, and yeah, beholders and hags and, and yeah it's got some creature lore you know it's got the, the, the kobolds in it and um mm. hags and things like that so yeah the the blood war one would be uh out of mordecanans um and i mean even the name volo which is <clears throat> ed greenwood who is a prolific writer for dungeons and dragons across many editions a uh, frequent contributor to articles in Dragon Magazine under the the byline of Volo. He'd be he'd write it as like Volo was like he would do like tour like lonely lonely planet tour guide sort of write ups of various places. I even once read a funny one where Volo goes to um, Barovia mm. and basically like has a little interview with Strahd interview with a vampire and then somehow magically bamps out of there again um you know some interesting stuff like that and losing his name uh from all of it as well sort of you know uh, there's a little piece of history there that that gets lost when we no longer have volo's guide to monsters but it's just just mordecanan's uh guide to the multiverse uh, i don't know yeah i guess so, though, I mean, there's so many names inside these books that we're hardly at a loss for them, but I, I think we have, I mean, things like Xanathar's, Yasha's, sorry, Tasha's. Um, I don't know. I feel like there's a, a good selection. Fizzbands is a new one, Treasury of Dragons. Yeah. I, I think it's cool when they put a name on it because it encourages you to try and learn a little bit more about, you know, who is this person, right? Yeah, and the, the, that there is more lore behind it, but that's a little bit to my point in that these books... Um, which often also were helmed by, you know, Mike Merles, who is no longer sort of a lead designer on the print stuff at D&D. Um, you know, there was a more of an emphasis on talking about the lore. There's a whole, you know, there's stuff in here, like I've just flipped open to elves and magic. And it just, you know, there's paragraphs about wizardry, about mithril, about blade songs, you know, there's these write-ups are not, they're not full of rules. These write-ups are not mechanical in any way, but they, they'll give you stuff that lets you imagine the bigger world and lets you imagine, you know, you're thinking, yeah, I want to make a blade singer. Oh, okay. Here's all the stories about what that is and things and helps, you know, sort of feed your imagination. And I don't know, maybe the thinking is today, you know, we don't want to pigeonhole people too much. We want everybody to let, you know, bring their own version of blade singing into it. But you know, not everybody's, you know, a, a top level 
lore writer. Some of us, you know, prefer to have a little bit of a starting point. It's easier to sort of think, oh, well, the lore says X, but what I'll do is I'm going to change, I'll tweak a few things for my version of it. Sure. Rather than starting with a whole blank page. And, uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. You, you're quite good at starting with a blank page though, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. It's a mix of things. I've been writing my own lore and you almost start to appreciate how much thought or and stuff never goes really realized, um, in the lore writing, like in some of these books, right? Um, besides just the mechanical stuff that many people feel, oh, well, it's just monster staff blocks. So I'll just get through it a little bit. Or Volus is like, oh, it's a couple new races. I'll give them a go. Oh, they, they're not all not very good. And they're weirdly classified as monstrous races strange um another issue i see that sort of popping up with is how so often in morden canons and in in volos really these races these you know cultures um especially drow and durgar and underdark races are often referred to as is inherently evil right or even in, yeah. in in the first paragraph or like the very first introduction paragraph about dwarves and durgars here's here's a line while the dwarves loyal to Morden take joy in the art of crafting in the form of strong family bonds, the Durgar are joyless, hateful creatures who create their works out of an urge to build and acquire. They come closest to feeling true joy when they raid dwarven strongholds to satisfy their lust for blood and treasure. Now this sort of tells us something about this race of people, right? Sure. The Durgar are like a dark mirror to dwarves who are, you know, they instead of, you know, loving the art of creating things they instead do it only for necessity or for resource you know for to build and acquire and to to gain you know and the drow whatever, lore right? is not so different very you true know, it, it talks about a war and the, the vanquished and... elves were were seen or, or not seen for or heard from for centuries lived in darkness absorbing unhealthy emanations of the underdark subsisting on tainted water and food and always beseeching their gods for guidance and following their, her, her, their god being Lolth, her poisonous dictates. Lolth's worshippers gradually transformed into the drow, the cruel, predatory, and wicked offshoot of the elf race. And of mm. course, then we had, you know, um, R.A. Salvador come along and write the Dritz series and give us a, a, you know, a dark elf that's on a redemption path, you know, who's rejecting Lolth and, you know, climbing towards the light. But it's um, weird that it's more of an exception story than, like, the thing that generally most drows, I'm sure, are maybe not thrilled to be living it under seemed in, a demon lord. You know, I, I mean, I didn't read the whole series, but even in the very beginning of it, it does seem that almost all of them hate the society that they're in, and they're only playing the game because they have to play the game or else. And right. it's sort of... Well, it does a bit sort of a different of, picture, that yeah. these individuals, even this race as a whole is not evil, but they well, are... The race is almost stuck under the thumb of this evil god, that sure. Lolth is what's making the... is the real problem here. And breaking free from her seems to be the, the real story. Right. Um, I, I think, again, it, it's... With these stories, it becomes increasingly like a bigger, almost like... You could look at it like a deeper issue, right? Like, one, I, I think... D and D as a whole is trying to move away from painting underdark, monstrous, whatever races as these evil, non, you know, less civilized creatures, right? Because I think so often, and in especially in our modern, you know, 
these days we realize like how kind of messed up that is right how yeah. reductive and simplistic and, and ignorant it is to be like these races are less civilized than us inherently and yeah. and, and that is how not, can we change and, that and 5e or maybe we're already in 5.5 there's no real clear line but the transition's been happening for a while and i'll admit that even reason even myself at the very beginning of it i was like hesitant i'm like wait why can't we just have evil monsters and nobody said you can't have an evil monster all they're saying is that not everything every monster of that type needs to be that one particular way mm -hmm. and i think you and i right from the get-go you know we felt that about 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 classes as well like not every every fighter needs to be a big beefy dude uh, you know like I mean, not look every at critical role look at orem right yeah this tiny little dancer and we've and this build. podcast has made so many examples of how we would move against trope to make a way better looking interesting thing and all we're saying is that yeah with monsters move against the trope as well like yeah. you know if if all your your ogres are normally big slow dumb thugs have one that's or bright have sharp witty who you know who or, yeah you, you still know, have like, to defeat him but he wants to play a game of chess to do so and suddenly you've got the most interesting encounter with an ogre you've ever had but again um, again I, I want to almost avoid the idea that like special things should be the exception to to ogres like maybe in your world ogres are you know are perhaps even non like they are are creatures that are you know war one thing and then were then turned into something else by magic right and a part of that process results in a loss of intelligence and then it's like who is doing this to these people and it's not about them being these big mean you know brutes as a society sure. right yeah but and that the examples that people have come very across kind-hearted people you are, know, are the most yeah the most misunderstood examples of them yes they were angry they were mad they were upset in these situations and for that they get a bad rep but yeah you get to know them you start to recognize that yeah there's a people here who are struggling and suffering and need help and need some love and and these sort of ideas in D D are i know but this is a really yeah. new type of D D because in the history of the world's greatest role-playing game, there has been a lot of just, okay, there's there's the monster, let's go kill it. And don't get me wrong, that's still very much part of D&D. &D. Uh, we don't have like loads of stat blocks that you know enable our combat prowess for no reason. Um, and and yeah, we still need we still need monsters in the game. We still need things that are inherently scary and dangerous and evil that need to be overcome. That's part of the game. Um, but part of the fun in the game now is also that some of those encounters that we come across aren't what we expect them to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and that the real evil to overcome is less obvious and not immediately on the surface and requires more social skills than just yeah. combat skills. That's also why I'm almost not necessarily against, but I, I want to push more than just kill Lolth and that'll make the society better again. You yeah. know, it's like these are, again, interwoven societal issues within drow society right like it was built upon this alliance with lolf so long ago that has become this religious connection you know what does zealotry look like when taken to its extreme you know I, I like how is the immense 
pressure on certain matrons to uphold images and families to fall in line and have good magical capabilities and, and follow the teachings of Wolf. And I'm sure there are so many people that are sort of sick of it, but have just sort of learned to live with this way in sort of society, right? And to just come in and go, well, no, no, you shouldn't live like that. And if you continue to do so, let me kill you. And it's like, well, okay, let's examine, you know, from the inside out, trying to empathize, you know, with this entire this the story which is is now suddenly perhaps much more reflective of reality right in the ways that we are pressured into in in conforming to some sort of societal i mean you think then let's turn it on back on the dwarves what does you know your definition of you know strong family bonds and art of crafting mean what do you mean durgar don't have you know joy we have immense joy in creating you know beautiful structural i mean that could be brutalism so many people love the brutalism architecture style and it tells us so much about a certain period of time right mm. i mean we, we could reflect that and be like honestly the order and the immense precision and the I mean, the craftsmanship and the artistic nature of it is still there but it is completely different value system than perhaps what the dwarves may like and it's not a worse or wrong value system it's yeah, yeah. evil and they don't have a, well, a lust for blood and yeah treasure, this idea of different but, having different artistic styles and then having a bit of a war over artistic styles is not crazy thought actually in fact in the world we have today there's there's plenty of people especially online oh my gosh people will go to war over you know disagreeing over the the smallest of of you know aesthetic differences so you know it's uh yeah i, I mean you could really could see that it's this could just be more about a, a really deep-seated value system that's that's differed because of of yeah historic pathways that you know and and why not extend that a bit further i mean we've always sort of said you know hill dwarves mountain dwarves yeah they all get along just fine whatever but you could easily in world kind of go no mountain dwarves and hill dwarves also still have a, a yet you know a different aesthetic value type and that this is a spectrum that these dwarves are on but yeah any single dwarf you know within that those groups could be very different place on that spectrum um the Dur a durgar you know with a good pair of sunglasses could be very much more like his you know hill dwarf uh cousins and and likewise you could find uh you know maybe some mountain dwarf who's who's gone you know hardcore durgar and you know you could even look at it maybe more of a, like a like a political spectrum even or something like there's mm -hmm. different ways you can portray it that doesn't have to be good versus evil yeah i think it's it, it's definitely something that I'm, I'm trying to introduce more in my games and i think the direction that dnd is going as a whole which is part of why i think some of this lore is being rewritten right it's not just the mechanics and the, the stat blocks that are being updated i yeah, expect I, with the new modern i book, don't mind a lot of the lore will be different as well my bigger fear is it's just being it's just being dropped down the memory hole i don't know if that's true i mean i don't know what evidence there is to I, yeah that. well and again wait I, this is this is purely just you know us oldies who are afraid of change saying you know we need to hold on to tradition we need to hold on to the past um yeah yeah and to some extent i'm, I'm not wrong about that although we've already dropped so many things but they, it's not like they ever really disappear the internet keeps it alive you know um i mentioned ed greenwood he you know he wrote so much about uh the drow and you know back in the early 90s um he introduced a a god called 
uh, Illustre. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. But she's like the Dark Maiden. But she was a you know Forgotten Realms-based uh, goddess for the drow who weren't didn't go hardcore bad that she was like actually kind of like you know she was about song and dance and sword work and hunting and moonlight and beauty and had all these other sort of like positive vibe things going for her and gave you know the drow again more dynamism and that they didn't all have to be stuck under Lul's thumb and that, that you could have whole you know communities of drow who were uh, who'd been following Elastray instead of Loth, and who were, you know, generally really nice people to be hanging out with. Yeah, I think they're the interesting like thing as well is that it introduces things like Durgar to play, right? So it's almost this like clash of, you know, this race being described as inc- like cruelty is the what rules their society, and that you know they only pause long enough to push the dead bodies of other miners that died from exhaustion <laughs> aside to keep going. And it's like, okay, wow. But I, then I, it comes to making a Durgar character. I and played it's like, well, one okay, in how a, do we recognize I this actually character? played one in a um, sure. uh, Eberron campaign. And Eberron's got a sort of funny story for them, too, that you have to dig deep into because the new Eberron books don't mention it much. But their DM was good, and we sort of worked through some of the backstory and how he was going to tie that into the his campaign. And I just played the the character as, like, he would be kind of like, He'd, he'd be kind of mean on the surface and he'd sort of have snide comments and sarcastic remarks and, you know, kind of, you know, some, some put downs and things like that for others. But then he would like always sort of be behind the scenes doing really nice things for everybody, but then like denying it was him or anything. And it was just, I guess, trying to reflect again, this idea that he had, he kind of grew up like this idea of like a lot of toxic masculinity around him but was like deep down inside like a real softy, like a really nice guy. He just didn't know how to deal with expressing that stuff on the surface. And he was around a lot of like growing up. A lot of it was kind of, you know, that stuff was maybe expressed as a bit of a weakness or whatever. So he and many others. And and I think that reflects toxic masculinity in the world that we're in now and that I grew up in as well. So that I was, it was in some ways not hard for me to play that character to sort of like, on one side have this real tough guy sort of attitude and then you know at the same time having your actions portray a much nicer sort of sweet guy who uh who just was really afraid of being found out to be as being nice yeah i I think that's a cute sort of thing a part of my i guess like the way that let me just sort of phrase first how it sort of describes it and then maybe articulate why i sometimes i find it a little maybe problematic not problematic but like I, i don't really gripe with it is that um durgars as well as many of the drow or whatever just like sort of seen in ra salvatore the adventurers are the exception right yeah which it's the idea it's that those who become adventurers are almost invariably this is from the text exiles from their society the durgar have no patience for those who fail to conduct themselves with an appropriate amount of an ambition and cruelty again eh, whatever um they're also called gray dwarves. Um, yeah, which is why I called mine as well. Sure, instead of I used to say to, to the uh, other characters in the party and stuff, when people use the word Durgar, that it was like, it was more of a slur. Oh, I don't know if it's a slur. I mean, it's more of a personal term. I mean, the, the clan in the lore of Forgotten Realms is Durgar, right? Yeah. It is the Durgar clan of the dwarves that are, you know, 
sent psionic signals by the mind flayers to dig deeper into the mountains, into the Underdark. That is the lore, right? Yeah. It is not of their own hatred or cruelty or desire to flee. It is purely the mind flayers tapping into their minds and inciting this greed to deep digger, right? Yeah. Uh, dig deeper. <laughs> yep, that thing too. Sure. Um, and this is then what they return to the surface and they find that more, you know, worshippers of Morden have pronounced them all heretics, right? And they protest this and then it leads to a big bloody war. I personally don't see the place in which Durgar have become cruel, hateful creatures. I mean, maybe it is, is it after this fact? I, don't, I assume all of them hold some spite for, you know, being allured into this terrible society. I mean, I'm sure as many people do when a sudden authoritarian regime takes over. Yeah. Is, when they feel duped and they feel sure. like, I, I did not ask for but this. After the war is over, after the war is over, it's the trauma. Yeah. It's all of these things that they're dealing with. And yeah, there's going to be emotional scarring and there's going to be, you know, there's going to be societal conflict that's you know going to be rife within their their culture for years and years to come generations as they start to work out uh, and overcome the the damage that was done by such horrific uh controlling creatures like the illithid Mm. Uh, one thing directly after this passage which is perhaps one of my favorite passages in the entire book um it's such an interesting visual or even just like a plot thread to give this to a character if someone comes up to you and goes i want my character to be tied to some eldritch being just take this steal this it's so good psionic awakening this is the final journal entry of garrel longseer once of candlekeep whereabouts now unknown i performed the ritual just as the book described as the magic turned the aboleth's brain to dust i inhaled deeply of the leavings a nearly infinite roll of years began to unspool before my eyes. I saw a red sun hanging in the sky over a desolate land, where the ruins of a castle slowly sank into a sea of dust. I saw an alien empire in a formless silver realm vanish in the wink of an eye, its slaves left to fend for themselves. I felt the pull of a force more ancient than the gods, one that remained beneath the surface of my son- of my conscious, but was ready to receive a new disciple. Since the day of my awakening, I have felt a presence in the back of my mind, something that pushes me to, to be set free as I, I struggle to stifle it. It grows even as my ability to keep it inside falters. Will there come a day when my mind is no longer my own? Yeah, I love pieces like that. You know, and... These sort of um, first-person accounts from various characters, fictional, used to mm. appear a lot more in older books. I was digging back through some uh, older Ravenloft stuff and came across a few uh, Van Richten's sort of little pieces that he'd penned in first-person this way as well. And, and I kind of miss those a bit. They add a lot of flavor um, and lore and give you that real vibe in a sense that, you know, I think some of the books today, if they are just, if they are just about mechanics and rules, it kind of, I don't know, we're poorer if we lose these things. So I am, well, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not change. jumping the gun on this. I'm, maybe I'll be proven wrong. Yeah. Maybe I'll be proven really wrong. Um, yeah. There's another I, I, section in here yeah, on, on Gith as well, um, worth mentioning, that the Gith Yankee don't often get talked about um 
and their sort of war. But again, it, it starts off the same sort of thing. You know, the story of the Gith is rooted in a cruel, twisted cosmic fate inspired by the great leader for whom the race is named. The Gith rose up and overthrew the mind flayers that held them in servitude. But after they won their freedom, two factions among the Gith disagreed about what kind of civilization they would forge. The disagreement quickly flared up into open hostility, and two groups distanced themselves from one another. And then it goes into, you know, basically the saying that the Gith Yankee were motivated by revenge, and the Gith Zeratsi are the path to enlightenment. And immediately you have a very much like, well, there's one group that's good and one group that's evil. And ta-da, we're done. Mm. And again, maybe, maybe as we know, there is always a little bit more complexity to any one story. Um, and maybe, so like thus far in the history of things, like you wouldn't ever really be able to play Gith Yankee. You'd always want to play Gith Razi because Gith Yankee would just be, you know, you playing like pure evil character. And I'm like, I'm so over alignment. I'm so like, mm, whatever. Gith Yankee Knights would be great to play. They've got some cool looking weapons and neat stuff and like just, you know, whatever. Mm. Astral skiffs and astral bricks. There was so much, you know. I'm looking. I'm looking at uh, Morty Kanan's Tome of Foes, and thinking, you know, right before our eyes in here was plenty of, plenty of Spelljammer esque stuff. Um, it even says here the helm, to enable them to traverse the skies and travel between the planes. The Githyanki ships is powered by a helm, a magical device in the form of a throne-like chair that converts psychic energy into motive force. Pretty much sure that's what Spelljammer is going to say as well. Um, maybe it's slightly updated. Uh, maybe that's, again, why these books are being phased out. They're trying to change those rules a bit. But um, but yeah, right before our eyes in Mordekainen's, we've had this book for years, uh, is all the stuff that is going to be coming out in Spelljammer. Well, not all the stuff, but, you know. Mm. Yeah, mix of stuff. I, I, I think... I don't know. Another thing that kind of interests me, though, is just like for one more sort of talk on the on the Durgar thing is the way that they're here's some of our clan names. If you want to randomly generate a clan name for your your Durgar, give me a number between one and twelve. Twelve. Under Earth. Oh, okay, that's a cool one. Okay, mm-hmm. another one. Neck Snapper. Mind Eater. Knife Mind. Doom Fist. Battle Gore. I mean, some of these are actually kind of cool. I I could see them for dwarves as well but again some of these are I- impose a certain idea about durgars i mean not to say that that idea is necessarily you something you should avoid in your game i think some clans could certainly embrace the image of being intimidating i mean you see it across history for sure but a generic you know i just imagine a community of people that are just you know nice and going about their business and they they're also just called the neck snappers but um that's just sort of their their cute thing it has no relation to anything they do really i don't know why they got that name and maybe that's a maybe it's something that your players kind of like at first are like whoa whoa the neck snappers that sounds evil and then they're like oh no we're just regular regular society of, of durgar i mean we do mining just like the dwarves we just went a little bit deeper and we've got a whole history with mind flayers and that's sort of the thing right i like the idea that durgar are not the evil mirror of of dwarves but simply dwarves that you know follow the whole mining thing to another level right and have this sort of maybe touch with psionics um and really interesting you know strongholds and societies that are built to keep out um 
the psionic things powers as well like i imagine that you know the walls surrounding this like a, a dwarf or like a durgar settlement are fortified not only from physical attack but from mental attack as well i mean they've experienced it for so long that it, it becomes a part of their their smithing and a part of the things they make you know yeah. dwarfs make the best armor but Durgars make the best mind armor, if you know what I'm saying as well, yeah. right? Like it's it's stuff that they learn that does not necessarily make their their craft. It's not fueled by spite, but fueled by adversity that they'd faced by going deeper, you know. Um, and it could be a religious region. Apart, some of the lore suggests that the leader of the Durgar um, created a pact with Asmodeus to resist rebuke Lolth or to rebuke whatever other dwarves or. I don't know. It's. I, I think you could play into that. I think that there was like something like there's a, a corruption there's a, government there's a, happens all the time. But. There's, a, I think, a historic um, fork of between Mordecai and a fallen dwarven god of some sort who becomes the god of the uh, mm. Durgar. But I don't know. Yeah. Hey, did you know? I was just looking through here that, and I've never really seen this. I don't know if it is on D and D Beyond or not. Do we have Gith person personality traits? ideals and bonds and flaws as a choice you can pick in under the backgrounds under the background oh, well that would be a race thing no well typically it's a race you pick, but you typically when you're picking i think that generally when, you, when you're taking picking mm. bonds and flaws and stuff typically it comes from your background yep. i think what um Morgan does is it provides a bunch of those for all the races, the races it talks about as well which don't I, but dwarves, I don't think that shows think, up in well. choices inside does that it doesn't is that something we can pick inside dnd beyond I don't know. Well, I've never really noticed book, it before. Maybe? I don't know. It's an interesting point. Um, they're usually shorter. The list has only got four to choose from. Normally there's like six or eight mm. um, for the background ones. Um, but it was interesting. I was just looking at the flaws. And again, it's very uh, it's very limited. It's like, so the Githrazi, Githserai, Githserai flaws. Mm. Uh, I see Githyanki machinations behind every threat. I believe in the supremacy of the Gith and that the Githrazi and Githyanki will align to rule the multiverse. And I respond to even minor threats with overwhelming displays of force. And next time I laugh, next time I laugh will be the first. The sound of merriment takes me to the edge of violence. It's like, oh boy, they really didn't give you a lot of uh, a lot of room for mm. different personality flaws there. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know. I mean, again, my sort of idea with that is is that is your first step into it, and then you almost with your DM take the lore one step further. Yeah. You know, I mean, every little game that you play is a little extra addition to the lore, which I is my favorite thing. Is when my world starts to get shaped by the players that play inside of it. Right. It's not just them that get to experience the world, but the world that gets to experience them. You know, I, that's one of my favorite sort of things that I've sort of learned and adapted. And there's new people that come up that I kind of make up on the fly. And then, oh, wow, this makes a lot of sense lore-wise. And then yeah, th those are sort of the magical moments that I like that at least fuel a part of my writing. Like half my blank page is filled by me just sort of having ideas off the top of my head or that I sort of get from other places and then shape them over time. And as my players experience them, um, they start to get fleshed out more and more and more until we've got this cohesive understanding of a place that we've lived in together for just a short little while, which is really when the world building feels satisfying, right? Like in some games and if you've experienced that sort of feeling when you get into an area and you see in the distance this castle atop a massive mountain and you think, oh, I wonder if I could go up there and what's in there? It's in the distance. It's this big mystery, right? And then you get to go and you see that place and there's this 
feeling like, wow, this was sort of set up and it's this, you know, place that I can physically go to and experience. And I feel like I try and make every space in my world kind of a little bit like that, right? That there's this reveal of this interesting place to adventure and explore and these interesting people to meet that it is not necessarily could be a place to be perhaps have some trepidation but also a place of discovery in in art and joy and beauty and tragedy as much as it is you know of danger or or the thrill of adventure um that is kind of my my hope with what they kind of emphasize if they go forth and, and rewrite a lot of this lore to reflect perhaps a more you know a more conscious understanding of how to tell complex stories right that aren't just the surface level because i mean there's the surface level the dwarves are good you know we defeat the the durgar and we stop their incursion um and their terrible tactics and we put them in their place you know and all is right and then the and next that, level all dwarves is scottish to, voices well exactly right um <laughs> and we do have sure. we do have almost like we have we've funny like Hey, Matt Mercer is almost to blame for a little bit for that. Every one of his dwarves, it seems, is he's tried Indian to change time. it. I know. I but think it's it's the Lord of the Ring movies. Yeah, what well, is as well? I think we've and I think I've done it in my games. I think I'm not the only one. I've I've had other DMs do it as well. Um, and I think this is actually important. We all need to always be trying to break down the stereotypes, mm. even our fantasy ones. It makes for better, more complex, interesting stories when we have. A character that we're 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 surprised by uh one that's a little bit more unexpected yeah. um hear me out what if you try and do your big dwarven scottish accent for an elf yeah hmm? give that yeah. a go or your big big um you know refined scholarly sort of voice you know perhaps a little bit you know posh right and then you put that on a dwarf you know what would that do you know how does that change things i mean some dms don't do voices all out together and that maybe yeah, yeah. is a, a weird roundabout solution to that problem but um, I don't know. I think it, messing around um, and, and breaking down these, I think, assumed stereotypes that we have of these J.R.R. Tolkien, Mm-mm. you know, based races, right? Or, or these things that go way back in, in all fantasy, like these fantasy genres, you see the dwarf and the elf, and they, they come up again and again. In, the, in, in many cases, the halfling or the hobbit or whatever you, you know, want to call it, and the gnome. And we assume. Many there's a good things about there's these, a good right? lot of so lore there's a really beautiful it. set of lore about halfling gods and myths in here again I, I hope that gets kept somewhere um it has it has one of my favorite ones the but the goddess uh Sira Lali, mm. uh who ivan included in a what well, was actually included for me in a uh in a one-shot christmas special that we did and she's the halfling goddess of um friendship and hospitality and and i just i just gotta love that that one's just it's just mm. some of the halfling stuff is i know it's a little bit it's a little bit samey you know like they're either hospitable or they're tricksters or they're you know whatever actually why Orin is such an interesting character in critical role because he's like the orum is the uh you know he's the tough guy fighter you know he's the big man on campus despite being you know three feet tall yeah, uh, instead of the the one who's kind of I mean I love how he's he, responsible. Like, you think and of he's him a as like guy the, 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 the average human fighter that's leading the party and sort of you know there's all the cool tiefling or well, actually no tieflings in this case but all the crazy genasi and whatever and he's the and there's like nope he he always plays the little short guy and there's like whenever he's trying to like imp- picture himself I, I I can feel his mindset like when he embodies the character you can see him physically embody it sometimes where yeah. he'll reach up as like oh, oh i'll tug on 
you know her, her her you know her little waistline you know to try and get her attention and he like physically reaches up like you're like oh wow now i i didn't for a second i forgot that he was yeah this for, for a voice right? actor he does a lot of extra little movements and things that really do help you sort of see how small he is and he thinks of himself in that character as that but then when you hear him talking and speaking you're like wow he really is this great leader he's he could be 10 feet tall but he's not he's he's got a heart of somebody who's this big as you know a giant but uh he he's small and i don't know i think that's lovely you know towards our you know point here about playing against your trope and not getting too stuck into things but that said there is a lot of great lore about halflings in here mm. that uh that basically talks about the halflings across the multiverse and how diverse and different they can all be and i think that's an important message to carry forward as well is that you know there is there's as many different you know sub varieties of halflings as you want there to be and while we only have stat blocks and things for some of them uh it's a world of, full of opportunity if you want to make somebody small and interesting uh mm -hmm. and likewise for the gnomes they're always pigeonholed as tinkerers uh it doesn't have to be that way yeah of course not um one other thing that like uh Mordenkainen Tomofos does that I really like that I never see used I think it's almost for almost like for a monster type thing but I could it, it, they kind of adapted a little bit is like a piety piety system for uh Theros is the demonic boons um that perhaps yeah. you can give to cambians but I think also to players adapt it beyond just demon lords or perhaps in a setting where you go full apocalypse edge lord every character's got some sort of dealing with a demon lord um I don't know that could be cute um is the idea that this bond gives them benefits, right? And these benefits are not bad at all. They are very good, in fact. Um, like a deal with Baphomet. Like, why would anyone make a deal with a devil? And then you tell a player that they can get a plus four bonus to their strength, and you're like, hold on now. <laughs> Where do I sign? <laughs> they get Hunter's Mark, Beast Sense, Slow. They get the ability to bonus action, you know, next hour you can learn the distance and direction of, of targets and track them down you can allow other creatures with this same benefit to make a weapon attacks as a reaction you can you know gain labyrinthine recall there's so many I mean, fun ideas in there right it's again like, why would i make a deal with frazor blue the prince of deception well, well how about a plus four to your charisma yeah Ooh, not even a limit to that on on the 20 you could take your charisma to 24 ju just with the deal what do i have to give let me yeah where's the contract you know yeah it's, here's the contract they don't even you. need to be a warlock per se like but... lots of little tiny fine print <laughs> yeah i love that idea give like introduce players into the abyss mm. and suddenly the demon lords are like these are powerful people i could kill them yeah. or i could send a messenger to make a deal with them and i always think actually even as a player handout the idea of doing up a cool contract, contract script yeah. like that with some big high level things they can read and then in like some sort of a of like um infernal script at the bottom a little tiny whole bunch of stuff like down 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 at the bottom that they can't really read like don't worry about that just click on agree mm. you know what i mean and everybody's like yeah terms of service we don't read a terms of service agreement we just yeah. click the button well, i yeah, agree give like a player like this like seven page long thing that's just filled with text and a lot like, of it oh, a lot of it they, they can't thing, read because right? it's you've got it in some sort of no weird like give it to them in comment they're just like oh it's so long and dense and so much of it is Legalese useless and just and like, like all right yeah. let me okay okay whatever whatever where do i and this and then you just sign here and then and oh you didn't realize that this has given me now lore implications to yeah do whatever i want a 
that's fun. hilarious and it's fun and mm. and handouts are good if you're actually playing at a table something like that could be really cool you know plus four to charisma is like that's it's, a huge baller or to wisdom as well um, um there's a lot of players who would happily sign a document without reading it for a plus four bonus, for a plus four bonus. that's great yeah and, and then of course as a dm be you know have fun with this remember you can't break the game but you can break players so sure uh, it's, it's true it's true um the thing a couple other of these i think one thing is that not all contracts are going to be written right i think now jubilex right what does <laughs> jubilex's contract it's all like? jiggly and jelloey like what is it is it in like a gelatinous cube that he sends to you or that they send to you but again a, a fun thing that they get their demonic boon is that if you m make a little deal with them you could get a plus eight bonus up to plus eight bonus with an equal penalty to intelligence wisdom and charisma Oof. so you become this mindless jelly thing that can squeeze through spaces and has resistance to bludgeoning slashing and piercing and whenever you suffer a critical hit everyone near you takes acid damage and you're suddenly becoming this jelly jubilex spawn slimy thing and you're losing your mind over it but the power i'll never die you know it's i, I think there's a lot of fun stuff you can turn into a little cloud of gas you can shoot out a little web a little bit of grease i don't know there's a lot of fun stuff um with these i i recommend i it makes me want to play a campaign setting where players are going into the abyss and learning that one they do want to keep their virtuous whatever whatever but also there's a lot of power that comes with making a deal with a certain demon lord right and maybe you know these creatures are more complex than just evil demons you know it's it's based on serving in hierarchy and and perhaps darker dealings but that doesn't mean that everyone who i mean we're complete we have to be in the system to survive right as much of us perhaps politics, feel baby. living within a system that we're not entirely happy with right mm -hmm. um you just gotta live in the system and if it does kind of mean playing with it a little bit to try and do good in this place of perhaps infinite suffering uh what may it seem on the outside i don't know that to me is a very interesting um idea to play with yeah you know, I'm just looking at Volos now, uh, the other book that may be delisted. And I guess as we start to look through that this lens of what has been problematic for D&D &D as an organization, where have they been getting the most heat, you know, in social media, the most criticism beyond that in regular, in, you know, in on, you know, on websites and other places that we'll talk about this, or even the mainstream media. And, you know, the the conflict um, that arises amongst D&D fans over orcs is uh, has been has been you know a real you know a real blow to D&D because it, it has felt like it maybe a like the a key piece to what might be considered you know racism within D&D mm. um, and regardless of sort of where you might sort of come down on you know that it it clearly is something that they need to address and there is a ton of stuff written up on the orcs the god sworn as they're called the chosen few the the fighter mentality of them the the violence the savagery the you know all of the stuff that's going on here life in the tribe um war wagons search detroit repeat you know there's a lot here that uh, you know, there's a lot here again that really puts them 
in a bad light all the time. And I think there's, there's a lot of people out there who, who want to see that changed. And maybe that's another reason why these things are kind of being delisted and kind of going away is that uh, there's going to be a big rewrite yeah. on these. Or even if it's not a big rewrite, it's a, it might be very light on lore and just a little bit more vague and more like, you know, it can be war is short, could not be, you know, up to you to sort of play that how you want to play it which sounds to me more like what 5.5e is really kind of all about. Mm. Yeah. I, I like these tables a lot for making unique demons because often I'll just say, oh, you see a big demon or whatever. And I'm maybe struggling to, like, besides the art it gives me, what makes this demon look unique, right? Yeah. There's a cool table called Unusual Demon Features. Give me a number between 1 and 20. Uh, 15. 15. Head hands. The demon has heads where it's, hands should be and uses the head's mouth to manipulate objects if the demon had claw attacks they become bite attacks that deal piercing damage how cool is that your hand hands are heads that's crazy it is crazy uh it's, it is you know these books these books have so many interesting things and i think we kind of like you know the thing about using D D beyond is often we're we're just looking at the stuff that's readily quickly available to us through the players character sheets or um whereas i'm picking up these books and just as you are and we're sort of flipping through and we're seeing the tables and we're seeing the art and we're seeing the pictures and stuff in them and and there's some beautiful work in here you know they're really so much mm. like there's double page spreads of artwork in here um there's maps and all sorts of I mean, this really, there's a really beautiful picture here, actually. You know, just to one second, give Wizards of the Coast a little bit of a second to sort of appreciate that not all orcs and kobolds are, are bad. This is a lovely picture, page 103, at the beginning of Character Races. It's, uh, there's two characters in a, looks like a human bar, at least the bartender's human. Uh, there's a kobold who looks like a bard. He's got a little, like, uh, string instrument sort of on his back. And, uh, an orc might be male or even female orc, probably female orc by the looks of it. Um, and they're both like clanking their tankards, toasting, both got smiles on their faces. And, and you know, it, it does sort of give you like a really lovely vibe about these two races. Um, you know, I don't think they were always portrayed in these books as bad or evil. I think, in fact, mm -hmm. these books are trying to bring them around. Yeah. And I think we're just going to keep trying to bring them around even farther now. And I think it's the idea of, of moving away from the idea that most of these, most of this race is this, you know, savage or like, you know, masterfully evil, cunning, you know, slaver race, right? Or that they are just slaves that are now, you know, cruel and in return that they learn from their masters. I, and that the few adventurers and the nice ones are the exceptions. I, I think that we are... The, the, the next step beyond that is to make it so that these races, perhaps they have a history of slavery in their past, but, you know, it's about learning to, you know, reconcile with that past and that there's still so many beautiful things about all of these interesting uh, cultures. Not, not all goblins are a monolith. Yeah. You know, not there will be so many different clans and subsects across the lands that look different, that, you know, interact differently with their terrain. I mean, just as the humans have their various cultures like you would never call two human societies you know 
it, it, like this like you would never both call them cruel or but like yeah. you'd, like one could say different things about the other like these places are completely different like a shipping coastal a of, village a lot of is completely different from a farm yeah. instead right exactly. like they're and imagine yet, then now this group of people who live underground i mean that has ha- has to change the way you think about sure. resources about like mm-hmm. local legends about you know the the gods you worship i mean i love that like a lot of these books as well try to introduce like 20 different gods and for some people this is too much to think about yeah but I love the idea that, again, it's not just Morden. It's not just Groomsh. There are so many different, you know, maybe they're even non-religious groups, you know, and maybe that there's something there, right? Like, we didn't like how how devout and you had to ascribe to this set of beliefs. And so as our own sort of sect of, of historically this, this group or whatever, we chose to break free of that. And, you know, they say that they curse us or whatever, right? But we're just sort of dealing with our own thing, and we're we are completely separate from that other group of orcs, and we don't know them. That we're, we're not just because we're orcs, you know. I I think there is so much potential there to kind of tell unique stories that are, are you know, reflective, perhaps in part of reality, but of of more thoughtful role playing opportunities yeah. as well, right? When you know these books, here's the thing as well. They they did introduce lots of new races. There's seven. There's 13 new races inside Volos. Um, there's what, three elf sub-races, uh, four if you count the drow. Uh, you could do Durgar from this. I mean, there's a, at least another half dozen in Mordenkainen. But these were all kind of races that were introduced separately from each other, right? They were sort of added on sort of over time. And since then, we've even had more added on. Um, the number of races you can choose from to play from now is huge, and a lot of them have got variants. Um, some of them are for specific worlds or whatever. Um, some of them have been adjusted uh, along the way. Um, oversights have been corrected a little bit, but some of the stuff that's in print in these books is you know, clearly out of date. Um, I suppose the thing about introducing the new book now as well is that all of the... All of the playable races can be standardized against each other mm. using, you know, the rules that are in Tasha's now, the way that we've set things up, that they can be laid out in a way that is clearly sort of fair and easy to sort of see the benefits of playing each particular race. Um, and yeah, maybe sort of correct some of the, the weird outlier pieces that or maybe not correct them. Sometimes I like the fact that certain races seem to have bonkers, like l- lizard folk are crazy, like OP compared to. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, uh, uh, you know, playing. Yeah, a, I mean, personally, halfling. my own sort of race system I have for my campaign currently is more of a lineage system, right? And we've yeah. seen this with custom lineage, and in my in the world and the setting I have, it's more of a human centric setting. Yeah, well, um, and so is Ravenloft in many ways, and the lineage isn't it clearly kind of just reflect gothic themes well it's not to say that i don't want these races to be played or that i don't find them interesting i love like in a lot of these settings they make so much sense to have and there's so much potent storytelling there it's just like for the story i want to tell i feel like humans are my main focus right these human groups and these different sort of lineages and these different role families it makes sense to me like i don't want to play a story where someone plays a non-human character and feels completely out of place right like i i want there to be representation of the characters in the story right without in in this world having to me at least like having a bunch of let's say you know tieflings or orcs it doesn't make sense 
for my story I want to tell, right? Yeah. And there's some stories I want to it someday do some cop noir full on with all the fantasy writings, sure. or, you know, races with you know dwarves and but it's all, you know, much more like again yeah. that sort of and it changes the flavor it changes the flavor of things how you decide to mix this and i think that's up to every dm to sort of decide when they're putting it together um well, I, I love the world where there is no humans or dwarves or elves it is mm. a whole world of orcs and goblins and yeah and maybe even others like i, yeah. I have a friend who's talking about having a sort of thing where most of the races have been enslaved and oh. and it was the monster races who normally are considered the bad guys who get to be the good guys that come in like rescue everybody so sure. it's like the it's like the 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 ogres and the centaurs and the minotaurs and the sort of other sort of like more monstrous sort of creatures that you get to play and kind of go all right let's go and like you know rescue the the dwarves and the elves and the humans and the halflings and everybody else mm. who you know you know what i mean it's kind of a fun way to sort of flip it on the head that the it's a bit shrek-esque in that way i suppose um, yeah yeah, it's cool. Hmm. All right. Well, I hope this inspired you to perhaps rethink or the way buy, you interact. <clears throat> buy yourself a couple copies of the old books just in case you uh, want a collector's edition. Sure. And we'll see you next week where perhaps we'll talk about this new yeah. book. <clears throat> and, maybe, and maybe prove that some of my worries and concerns are unfounded. Yeah. Uh, perhaps the lore will be preserved. Or maybe... Even better yet, the lore will be improved. Mm. All right, folks. See you later. Bye.